Hello, yet again, you are listening to my voice, which is coming from my throat, and that is attached to me, which is Mr. Jeff Watson, and this is the Inspired Minds podcast, version uh, nine, I think. I don't know, actually. This has been uh, really fun. <laughs> this, whole, this whole thing started out. My friend Michael Lee Simpson, who uh, puts these things together and lets me talk to some amazing people, he just came to me. I've known him for a very long time, and he said, I can get access to some pretty great people because Michael's a fantastic writer, uh, a script writer, and he writes for a bunch of great magazines like uh, creative screenwriting and the drill and just a great guy all around. And he said, do you want to interview some people about art and uh, the intersection of inspiration and psychology? Um, and I said, yes, because I've been talking with Michael about said thing. Um, I am a therapist myself, new one. My goodness, what a whole field that is. Can't wait to keep doing it. But uh, formerly a Business person and also an artist myself, uh, being in about a billion bands. That's my credibility. That's what I've got. But it's been great. I've been really having a chance to uh, interview just some fantastic people um, in Hollywood. But it's not necessarily that they're big star people. Because uh, some of them are and some of them aren't necessarily. But it's more about what we can do to connect as human beings through art and what that looks like, etc. So... This one was fantastic, and they keep getting better and better at some point. Next person better really kick up the kick up the juice here, because this is a tough bar to clear after this one. Asher Goddessman, the fantastic person that I spoke with, that you're going to hear in a second, and wow, what an inspiration this guy is for me. Um, in the 40 minutes that we discussed, he is lives in Los Angeles, and he's a rabbi. Um, he has his own personal story through. Addiction, which is also my story as well. Not the exact details, but basically they're all the same. I don't want to, my life sucks. I don't have any power of anything anymore and I need help. So that was fantastic to speak with him about. It was uh, so many different touch points about trauma and loss. Uh, he's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's this tech startup thing, which I don't understand any of that stuff. That's why I'm a therapist. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff at any rate. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Um, if nothing else, I got to talk to this guy for 40 minutes, so I kind of win either way. Uh, stay tuned for uh, other hopefully great ones. I'm sure they all will be. That's why I like doing this. And here's Mr. Asher. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me, Mr. Asher Gottesman. Am I pronouncing that right? Gottesman? Gottesman? Gottesman. Gottesman. Thank you so much for joining me on uh, on this lovely uh, Inspired Minds podcast. Um, as I was mentioning to you, Asher, a second ago, um, I am a big fan of yours, just from uh, understanding a little bit about what you're currently doing with your world and your life, and it has a lot of resonance towards me. And also, as I mentioned, this podcast is about creativity and inspiration, and I think a lot of that is that can be found in recovery from any kind of, because you kind of have to almost be inspired to find recovery and to find yourself. So that's kind of the crux, I guess, of what this thing is about and we'll see where it goes. But to start off with on a very silly question, I got to ask about you. I saw in your bio, forgive me for stalking, but I saw that you no uh, were, 
you were a Tears for Fears fan? Did I get that right? I huge. Um, actually, it was the first concert I ever went to. That's what I saw. <laughs> I, I, I had the great fortune, great fortune of working with them briefly at my old label, Warner Brothers Records, that I worked at. This is like five, six years ago. And uh, I, I, I geeked out. Like, I don't geek out that much, Asher, but I geeked out. So, uh, yeah, I saw them. I saw them in concert. Uh, 30, um, 47 years old. So it was the Sowing the Seeds of Love concert. Yes. And I'm pretty sure that it's about 36 years ago. I will say this, by the way. Uh, to this day, I can sing Women in Chains perfectly. <laughs> right. Well, everybody wants to rule the world is, a, is, a, is, is something that um, hasn't changed much. <laughs> <laughs> That's Especially lately over in the Eastern Europe area. Yeah, you got that right. Yeah, I'm really unfortunately, yeah. My goodness, I didn't mean to bring that down so quickly. I'll try and bring it back up now. Um, But no, you know, I was really impressed with your story because it seemed like, and again, I'm just going to, I'm going to put words in your mouth. You can spit them back out if they're wrong. But it seems like you experienced, I think it was a loss of like a multi-million dollar business and everything kind of burned to the ground. And can you kind of talk a little bit about that arc and then how you kind of got to where you are now? I know it's a long one, but I'm definitely curious. Sure. So, you know, I grew, I grew up in a, in a, in a, you know, again, what I've now learned is was a wonderful household, but, uh, you know, a Jewish household where my dad was the rabbi of the day school and the two people that were very well respected were those that donated money. So those that had a lot of money and those that um, were very religious. And I wanted to be the the one with a lot of money as I felt very challenged by religion. And okay. um, from a very young age uh, t- till about 32, um, no, 31 and a half, 32. Uh, so from 20 to 31, 32, I was knocking it out of the park. And I was doing very well financially. And then from... 31 to 33, I lost everything. So between 05 and 08, um, I went through a series of transactions and deals that, you know, knocked me on my butt. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say ass, so I'll say butt. You can just, um, <laughs> <laughs> Fucking yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay, no problem. So, yeah, so it knocked me on my ass. And actually in the summer of 07, I bought life insurance with the intent to kill myself because um, I thought my only value was financial. And I had three kids at the time. And and if I couldn't support my children and I couldn't support the community and I couldn't buy respect, how does that sound? Or buy um, my self-respect, not external respect, really internal respect, which is, mm-hmm. um, you know, then I was worthless. And so the only little problem is you got to wait two years to kill yourself. So uh, wow. yet I will tell you having that suicide in my back pocket really did save my life. And I'll get to that in a second. So uh, to make a long story, a little shorter, I went to therapy and unbeknownst to be my therapist at 27 some odd years sober. I told my therapist that I am a true narcissist that I've never done anything good in my life without balancing out the bad. And he told me, that my hardware is fine, my software is severely effed up, and do I want to do something about it? And I told him, yeah, buddy, I do, but you have 19 months. And he meant, what? And I said, yeah, I'm out of here in 19 months. Yeah. And he said, do you have a, 
you have a plan? And I said, nope, uh, not yet. I just, we're going to do it in a way that my kids won't know I killed myself. I don't want to hurt anybody. It was, the goal wasn't to pain the world. It was about an internal pain, not external pain. And, um, you know, so that is, um, and instead I got sober. He sent me to uh, meetings. At first I was very angry about that. I said, why are you comparing me to a junkie on the street? And eventually I saw the beauty and the spirituality in a room full of people that are just there to try to help themselves get better, you know, and where else do you have that? You know, most times, uh, you know, in religious environments, it's because you have to be there, um, quote unquote, because, you know, you, you are fearing something as opposed to coming to a room to better yourself. And to me, there was nothing more, more spiritual than that. And, um, that is the story I'm sticking to. Now, why I say it was, a, by the way, why I say the suicide was a miracle is because it allowed me to have the courage to walk through, you know, bankruptcy, sobriety, having a child and starting a business. So it definitely, you know, um, gave me a lot of, a lot of courage, which had I not um, had that in my back pocket would have been really daunting. And, and when I do the work today with people, I, I say the same thing is, you know, having, you know, giving yourself a way out in the future. So, you know, not in the immediate. And I don't realize this at the time, but at that, at that time, I, you know, I had this self-imposed um, time frame because of, uh, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that the life insurance paid. So yeah. having that. Having that, you know, time frame where it's like, okay, so now I'm going to do my best during this time frame, right? And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't work out, I got an exit, you know. So it was kind of a hedging strategy and uh, yeah, yeah, not realizing it. So today when I, you know, so often we, when somebody talks about suicide or we hear suicide, everybody gets really um, scared and and he runs away from it or says to somebody, no, 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 you can't think that way. How are you going to make a temporary decision for, uh, sorry, yeah, a permanent yeah. decision for temporary temporary problems, you know, and are very adamant because it's a very scary thing. And I know it's very scary. Yet, to me, I say to people when I have the privilege of working with them, when it comes to this specific arena, I'm not going to take it away from you. And that's number one. Number two is, and everybody thinks about it. So yeah. let's yet, yet let me offer something else. Let's put that as an option. Yet it's an option on the back burner for right now. And let's try all other options. And if all other options don't, don't work, right, then then you can jump out. You could you you, you do whatever you got to do at that point in time. You know, I can't stop you nor prevent you from doing that. And or be the one to tell you that that's not a correct option even. Yet I will be the one that will sit here and say, okay, now we could seek other options with a lot more courage because you have an exit. Absolutely. And I have to say this, actually, I'm getting chills right now because I had a, I had a very similar experience myself. And I'm not going to make this whole thing about me, but I will tell you really quickly, um, I experienced an enormous trauma, as I think I may have mentioned earlier. Uh, which was the suicide of my wife about eight years ago. And what ended up happening was, it's so incredible that you just said that because I was, needless to say, and I was suicidal before she died. 
Um, I, mm-hmm. I had addiction issues. I had suicide issues. There's all kinds of stuff and, and, and a lot of mental illness that I didn't know at the time, which is uh, regulated, et cetera, through work. But I had a friend of mine. I'll never forget this. I was sitting with a friend and I said, I'm going to kill myself today. And she, I was crying and she was holding me. And she said, just do it tomorrow. And I said, what? She just, just do it tomorrow. Call me tomorrow. We'll figure it out then. Just wait. Don't do it today. And it gave me agency. It gave me power at that moment. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it really knocked me back in a good way. I thought, oh, I don't have to do it today. I can drink tomorrow. I can use the next day. It's just, it was almost the same model. Sure. And it, it, and it does. And, you know, and the key of somebody who's good, a good guide, right, so is to be able to know when. Right, because I will tell you that later on in life, I had to set it aside so I could do some of the deeper work, and say I'm not. That's not an option. It's not something I'm going to do. So let me look to do the deeper work. Yet, it's just you know knowing when, you know. So to take it away from somebody who's in deep pain, right? Who does who doesn't want to live, to say, oh no, you got to give that up is ridiculous. It's like saying to somebody who is getting sober, you know, you got to give up alcohol the rest of your life. It's insane. Right. What an incredible perspective you have on that. You're absolutely correct in terms of at least my own development. Now, the other thing I have to ask you, too, this is probably the most important question I have for you, quite frankly, is this thing about radical honesty. That Mm -hmm. term is fantastic. It reminds me a lot of, and maybe this was intentional, maybe not, of Marshall Linehan's DBT, Radical Acceptance. You talk about, you know, accountability and unconditional love. Can you kind of talk a bit more about that radical honesty concept? Sure. So radical honesty is not me, is me being honest with you about me. So what do I mean by that? It's not me telling you what I think about you. It's not me offering my opinion um, unless asked. Um, But radical honesty is me talking about me. When I walk into a room and I'm asked a question, is either radical honesty could be, you know what, I'm really uncomfortable answering that question, not deflecting. Uh, that could be radical honesty right there. Yet if I'm going to answer the question, okay, then I have to answer it with vulnerability and, and not worrying what you may think of me. That's partial radical honesty. The other piece of radical honesty is, you know, is honesty with self. So, so many people, if you ask them, are you honest or dishonest, you know, we call that cash register honesty. Yet, are you, when I'm in my room by myself, am I manipulating my situations to get the responses that I want? And if I am, how do I change that? And am I listening with an intent to argue or am I listening with an intent to learn? If I'm listening with an intent to learn, then I can change my mind. That's radical honesty. Or radical honesty is saying that when somebody says something, you know, say, honestly, I'm really not listening to you because I'm just so caught up in my own beliefs and I'm not ready to hear what you have to say. So that's part mm-hmm. of radical honesty and saying it to yourself, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not ready to do this yet. So radical honesty is internal to self and showing up as who we are, not as who we want somebody else to see us as. Because my whole life, I believed if you really knew who I was, you couldn't possibly love me. And in order to yes. get rid of that belief, I needed to show up as who I am, and we'll see what happens. Yes, that what it's and it requires an enormous amount of humility as well to say I just don't know yet. Exactly, and I, I think that's lovely. You know, it's something that else. You know, I have some 
some things that I've read of yours that, you know, talking about trading ego for vulnerability, right? That to, to, to be able to, I think you also say to leave the pursuit of pleasure for the pursuit of meaning. And I'm sure you're a Victor Frankl reader. Yes, absolutely. And that book changed my life. It was honestly, it was a turning point, or one of many, but one of the turning points in my own journey when I just went, oh, service work. Right. I get it. <laughs> so, <laughs> duh. You know, like, right. I, I went out to Cambodia working in an orphanage after, my, after the event, and I, that just changed everything for me personally. But about you, though, I am curious, was there a were there a, a, maybe a series of light bulbs or a light bulb about service work, like one instance of service work where you went, oh, right, this is it. So it really was, and it still is, when I'm working with somebody else without the expectation of return, my life feels totally different. You know, it, it's the, for me personally, it's when the capitalist, capitalist of me is gone and my ego is not in the room. I'm just there as uh, uh, just there as one person being there for another person that I feel worthy and they feel worthy and we feel worthy. And, you know, that to me is service work. And, and the bottom line is that any, anybody can do it and anybody can feel great. And, and my service work doesn't have to look like your service work because I'll tell you, service worked for me also sometime with my own children, right? Because mm. I had to look, I had to learn how to be present for my children, right? AD, I, I suffer from ADD. It's not that I didn't want to be. I had to learn how to be, and I had to learn how important it was. Because sometimes when you do service work, you get admiration and adulation from the people you do service work with, and then you get lost in your service work, and you forget to be there for the most important people in your lives. In your life, excuse me, not in your lives, because uh, every time it, that's part of radical honesty is I'm talking to myself, right? I'm not talking to anybody <laughs> else. So in my life, so I had to learn how to be a present dad. And today I am, which I'm really grateful for. I just, then I wasn't. So it's service also can be to show up for what you're supposed to, even when you don't want to. Yep. So it shows in different ways, because then you, you start to, you start to feed your soul and say, "Oh wow, I'm doing the I'm doing the right thing," even though there's other areas that quote unquote may seem right to the world that would feel better because I would get admiration. I'm going to do this differently today. Yeah, there's a quote that I'm sure you know from Gandhi who said that in order to find yourself, you must first lose yourself in the service of others. And mm -hmm. I, that, exactly. that resonated with me so, and it wasn't until about two or three years ago when I decided to become a therapist, when I had this revelation of like, oh, service work, that's how this whole thing works. Um, totally. And I just thought that was fantastic. You know, another thing too, that I really liked uh, some of the things that you were talking about was um, the first, uh, you, you have a quote here. You said the, for the first time in uh, the, your life, you felt the power of shared human connection through the uh, through service and self of others, and that's what you're talking mm -hmm. about, really, right? Is that is that service to the higher connection that I think we're all disconnected from these days? Exactly. So, how did you get into the? So then, kind of walk me through uh, your concept of doing service work, and then kind of where you are now in terms of you've got a lot going on. I've noticed. I mean, service work. I still do service work. I try to do it on a daily basis. So. And just be there for people who are struggling and suffering. That to me, 
I define service work as being with somebody else without any expectation of return, mm-hmm. showing up in any way. So whether that's going to visit sick people in the hospital, whether that's donating blood, whether that's spending time, whether that's greeting the homeless man on the street, right, with yeah. dignity, a homeless woman, excuse me, um, sure. homeless person or houseless person that they call them today, uh, you know, with dignity and respect and introducing yourself. It's common courtesy to all those around us. Those are service. And I said it, sometimes it's our own fat. When you get home from work and you're really tired, service can be playing that game with your child with a smile on your face. That's service. Yep. So, you know, service shows up for everybody in different ways. How about service for yourself? Is that a thing? Can that be a thing? Sure. Of course. What does that look like? What does that look like for you? Just taking time to meditate. Taking time to um, work out. Taking time to, you know, pray. Taking time to refine, you know, to to exercise, you know. Where are you from, by the way, originally? You were California, right? Southern L.A.? I was born in, yeah, I was born in L.A., correct. L.A. guy, wow. What was it? It's just fascinating to me. So you're talking 80s, 90s, I would imagine? Um, uh, 80s, 90s. I was born in 1974. Oh, okay. So you're an OG. That's right. You are. Okay. <laughs> it's, and it's interesting, too, because, and, and you know, I'm from L.A. originally. I've been, I was there for a very long time. Um, I'm currently up in the Bay Area. But I oftentimes wondered if the... Um, the stereotype of Los Angeles being a spiritual black hole is true. Here's the story. It's what you make of it. You know, there's a, there's a quote I wanted to ask you about, actually, it's not yours, but um, so you, you may know him as a rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel. He said, our goal should be to live life in radical amazement, get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual, uh, to be spiritual is to be amazed, and the idea of radical amazement is something I brought up obviously for you because of the radical honesty connection. That completely resonates. It's just an unbelievable way to see the world, and that's something that I that I saw in you in the way that you would. I'd seen some of your podcasts as well, and that's something that really kind of felt like that resonated with you. I would imagine. Totally, yeah, that's beautiful. When you are when someone comes to you. And they say, um, I need help in, in, in whatever form that may be, maybe drugs, maybe any kind of thing. Um, do you just, is it just about being present and just listening with them? I would imagine. And to kind of see where that goes. Uh, Absolutely. It's exactly that being it's, it's shutting up, right? It's, you don't have to, it's, you don't have to make any changes. Literally don't tell somebody it's going to get better. Just show up. There's one thing I learned in grief uh, with the loss of my wife, and that was that oftentimes people, or after, especially people came to me and they um, weren't able to be present with me. And I could understand to a certain degree because it was so traumatic and so big that it scared them. But it was the people that just sat with me and just said, like one person just said, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, over and over again to me. And that was it. And it was what I needed at that time. Right. I think just being there with people, you know, you don't, is, 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 is extraordinarily powerful. 
And it's a lost art, I think, to a certain degree, because, you know, I, I was in the music business, as I mentioned, and I did a lot of digital marketing and I watched social media tear people apart. And it's that disconnection that is just so, quite frankly, terrifying for me these days, especially. And I really want to try to connect people together, as I'm sure obviously you do as well. Um, but how have you seen the social media world kind of work for or against maybe connection? Well, I think the social media world is is the greatest false sense of connection. So I say we're the m most connected, disconnected society in history. So yep. while we feel, while we believe we have a, a, a connection, uh, it's really a false sense of connection. And it's also easier to hide. You know, it's, it's definitely easier to practice non-radical honesty um, instead of radical honesty in the social media world. And it creates jealousy and it creates, you know, people show their best life, quote unquote, uh, you know. And so for me, it, and, you know, it's not all bad. It's the way, you know, we can see what friends are up to and we can share beautiful things and we can find out what our friends from many, many years ago are doing. So I don't want to take it away, you know. Yeah, there's, it's misused for, you know, bad news. And, you know, I had a quote on my Instagram page the other day, you know, saying that um, I'm, I'm, put, I'm, I'm shutting off the news and putting on a serial, serial killer uh, documentary to relax. So <laughs> I find that a lot of, a lot of negative, it's just, it just, we thrive for some reason on this negativity. So, and my, my, my hope is that people get off social media, you know, this this place that we've been living amongst these tall buildings and not with any sense of nature is is something that really does not it does not resonate with our souls. We need we need to, uh, you know, to be with others. Absolutely. It is in our DNA, for God's sakes, you know, we're. We I, evolutionarily, is that a word? Did I, did I say that right? Yeah. Eh, whatever. Uh, evolutionarily, we, you know, as, as, as cavemen, we had to be tribal to just try and keep everybody else away and not, you know, don't take my food. And we had to have that sense of community. And, you know, just watching this, the whole community, and you're absolutely right. It is so deceptive. People talk about the connection of the internet. Like, uh-uh. <laughs> it's so unbelievably disconnected. Because as you said, we think we're connecting. It's such a difficult thing. You know, I, there's one thing. Have you heard when people said, I don't know if you've heard people say this, and they said that you've never been more disconnected since the Civil War. It's I a thing. Not. But then I quickly did the math, and I realized that that is completely untrue because I thought, well, there's, how did a farmer know about it in Iowa that the war was going on? They didn't. And the only way people knew about the war was through newspapers. And then I did the math and it was about 450,000 circulation back then. And that was it. it was like only 450,000 people kind of knew what was going on. Um, right. And they got, they got 330 million people that know what's going on. That's a little scary, but how do you push back against that? I'm curious. I think I know the answer, but. Right. It's about connecting to one another. So I think Correct. there are great uses. It's important that people know what's going on. I'm not denying that. And huh? people can gather, can gather, you know, can definitely gather. I personally think that one is it, one is completely different than the other, and doesn't and doesn't replace the other. 
Next question that I have. This could be interesting, I hope. <laughs> we'll see. So as I mentioned, this podcast is about inspiration, inspired minds, and we've been talking to vastly different people across the spectrum. But you write about prayer. And I would like to know your thoughts on, or at least your process, about the relationship between prayer and inspiration and if what that connection is, or if they're the same thing. Pray for inspiration. <laughs> drop the drop the mic. That's it, buddy. You did, didn't you? Like, you did, didn't you? You know what? Pray, prayer is about you know it's a personal journey. Um, identifying number one, a higher power. Where I'm not in charge, so I don't know. You, each person's got a. I don't care who their higher power is. Could be. I'm not here to tell you got to believe in God, but just stop thinking you are God. Uh, so that's number one. And then after that, prayer is is a way to spend time with yourself and your soul and your being and your higher power and you know and ask for whatever you want and create unlimited and unlimited dreams and goals. The way I look at prayer, because um, I'm I'm a big music dork, as obviously yeah. <laughs> clearly clearly you are as well. Um, there's this there's this quote that's been ringing in my head for so long, especially for this podcast which is from Keith Richards, and he talks about the process of inspiration. And he said, there's got to be a lightning rod. And if you're a lightning rod, it's going to hit you. The song's going to get you. It's out there somewhere. And But to be that lightning rod, you have to be in tune. And I think right. at least, right. So for me personally, at least, my relationship uh, with the higher power, my prayer, my meditation. I mean, sometimes, honestly, my meditation is just listening to uh, Bruce Springsteen. You know, it's like, because for me, music is my ladder to God, is what I've always said. So that's my, that's my meditation. That's my prayer, basically, is really anything from Steve or to, you know, Black Flag or <laughs> whatever it may be. But it's that, right. it's that, yeah, and it's that connection that I really, um, it's that prayer connection that I really find fascinating. And I, I love the way that you write about it. Thank you. You know, I, I truly do. You know, it's a really wonderful and you, know, you, you talk about respect and, and, and loyalty. And, um, but the one thing I also wanted to ask you about was, again, you know, looking on your site, you have an interview and it says, what irritates you the most? And you had written or you said judgment. When other people judge others, it kills me. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, again, who am I to judge? Now, again, we're all so and I changed it a bit. We're all judging. So now, once I observe something or I judge something, how do I change it to favorably judging? How do I right. remind myself I'm not in a place to decide what is good or not good for you? I'm hardly in a place to decide what is good or not good for me. So, you know, who am I, who am I to be the dictator of the world, right? Yeah. I always say, I say part of my judgment is, thank God he is, I'm not. I don't get it <laughs> half the that go on around here, you know, and not judging doesn't mean I have to put myself in foolish situations, right? I don't got to, I don't have to waste my time, you know, thinking, is this person right? Is this person wrong? Is this person good? Is this person bad? Is this, this, you know, just, um, it doesn't, um, you know, it's just a waste of time. It's a waste of time. And it's just another way to separate myself from others. 
Yes. And I will add, by the way, too, that when I see people judge themselves, it also kills me. Um, it's hard for me to watch that sometimes because as a, as, as I mentioned, you know, starting to be a therapist and even just in the recovery world and such, sometimes I watch these people and they're just so judgmental about themselves and it, totally. it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for me. You know, I tell people this thing recently, I say, you judge yourself, you're the judge, you're the jury and the executioner, right? I'm like, yeah. I say, okay, as the judge, what is your sentence going to be? Is it going to be a year? You know, six months with time off, a, a month, a day, you walk out of the courtroom with your handcuffs off, like, that's on you. Hundred percent <laughs> right. your choice at that point. Now there's a difference between guilt and shame. You know, guilt obviously is, eh, maybe I shouldn't have done that next time. We'll do it next time. But I watch people with these judging themselves with these with these with these shame models and it, it just like hurts me. Well, again, it, it just allows them to stay in their in the in, in their own way, right? Shame is I am versus yeah. guilt is I did, right? And exactly. Shame yeah. just al- allows allows me or the person that I'm shaming to just stay in the given situation. Because if I'm a liar, uh, how how am I going to not lie? If I'm a thief, how am I not going to steal? So it's an unfortunate way to stay stuck. That's exactly, and and there's almost a self fulfilling prophecy too. You know, it's like, it's like the um, well, not maybe not self fulfilling prophecy, but it's like the uh, the monks who would you know f- uh, flay themselves with the uh, with the whips and the and the chains on their backs. You know, I'm sorry, penance, constant penance. Sad. There's a couple of things I wanted to ask you too. That I thought was interesting. Uh, one was, and again, I'm just kind of going from some of the stuff that you had written about, is that. Um, Sometimes that uh, I think it was like the what's the worst lie that you could tell is that you're you said I'm afraid to ask for help so the worst lie would be when I needed help I will and and would say eh, I'm okay sure so for me to share my story of recovery or suicide or this big deal I don't even care yet for me <laughs> to ask for help now that that's a big deal for me to say I'm scared I need help that to me is a big deal so uh, learning how to be transparent about that is that's where radical honesty comes in, right? Because people would think that sharing the the negative stories about self would be the big deal, which for me, it's not. No, in fact, I was very cathartic about my experience on Facebook uh, for eight. I, mean, I wrote constantly about my wife's suicide. And a lot of it was I was man. I was manic and didn't know it. And, I PTSD and CP and the, the complicated grief and all mm-hmm. going on, but I wrote about it. I wrote about it constantly, and I still do to this day, for that exact reason. Because I don't, I don't care. I mean, if if somebody else can get something out of it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I shouldn't say I don't care, but it's important for me to have that kind of radical transparency. So I'm, I'm I, the second I read that about radical honesty and radical transparency, even perhaps it just again. Really rang a lot of bells in my head, so. Thanks. Yeah, really, I'm very excited to have this conversation. You have no idea. Um, yeah, actually, I'm going to ask this. Maybe it be kind of fun, just for a side note. Um, Sweet Caroline, I think you said that you're a video diamond song, correct? I, I love Sweet Caroline. Can I tell you a Sweet Caroline story? Of course. Oh, this is a good one. So I'm a big Neil Diamond fan. Even the Heartlight and the E.T. song, like, whatever, it's fine. 
I get it. But I went to go see him at the 40th anniversary of the Hot August tour or the show, the Greek, right? The famous album that he did. Um, I, about 10 years ago, there was a 40th anniversary of that uh, show at the Greek. So I went to go see it. He did Sweet Caroline. I'm not kidding. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in that show. He knew what he had. <laughs> I wish I wish I had been there because I, I love that song. So I'm sure you've seen it live, perhaps. I actually have not. Oh, the whole crowd. I mean, it was the Hollywood Bowl, or I guess it was the Greek Theater. Uh, I'm sorry. Great song. No, it, no, it was like it's a great theater. Oh, magical. It was. It was. By the way, it was. It was in August, and it was, of course, hot. So it was like an amazing evening. Um, just fantastic. Well, again, uh, you know, I'll, I cannot thank you enough, Asher, for doing this. This is going to be a, this has been a hoot for me. I'll tell you that. And I, I've learned so much from you, even just speaking with you so quickly. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for all your amazing questions. And I hope the listeners got something out of it. If not, I did. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I always say that I do a little intro at the beginning of these things that I'll kind of tack on. And I always say, hope you enjoy it as much as I did because I'm having a blast doing this stuff. So, <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so, so much. And right. thank you again for your, for your patience. Uh, you know, I, oh, uh, please. I want to, I want to acknowledge that. So. Well, it was an honor speaking to you. I've learned so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care, Asher. Bye-bye.